Hello, hello. Welcome back to the CTO Studio. I, of course, am your host, Nikolai Walker, on the mic and in your ear. We are doing our final interview today with Aaron Longwell, who is in charge of building the legal app for the Afghanistan legal system. So we're going to jump right in and start talking about his book. Here we go. We had our seven CTOs group meeting yesterday and Patty asked me how that's going. And I was like, she, cause I had made a goal for this talk. I was like, well, I need to get a couple chapters written. So I, you know, do some time to think and spend on the book. And I said, I was going to make two chapters. And so she asked if I did it. And I was like, no, I just made a mess. (laughs) Like I, what I've been doing is just like, I think this is maybe healthy, just like, just right. I'm just writing. I have a, a giant stream of text. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm gradually. You mentioned you're starting. You're working in, in Google Docs, and I'm gradually trying to move the polished stuff over there to start. You know, letting sharing it with other people and stuff. Um, but I think one of the things I'm struggling with a little bit is is who the audience is and how how to like which parts to present i think we've been talking about degeneracy in this call we haven't really i think some of the audience hasn't seen the talk that i gave so we should talk about what that is for a minute (laughs) um so essentially what uh what where the book comes from is uh after a company i was managing failed I realized that the reason we failed is that this is, I mentioned this just a minute ago that we weren't moving fast enough. Like we were, we were moving into new market was a real estate data company. We're moving into new markets and we could not adapt our current code to work in the new markets quickly enough. And as a result, we just couldn't grow fast enough to get interest of big enough companies to buy our data. Like our data would be valuable if it was nationwide but we were limited to about four states at the time. And the fifth, sixth, seven states were really slowing us down. So when the company ended, I was like, this seems like something that has like a solution in the books. How do you make your code adaptable? And what I found is that when engineers think in terms of adaptation, they don't mean what I meant. Um, I think the example that jumps out to me is adaptive websites. Do you remember when that was a thing? So you would, you would write some code that says if OS equals Safari, then redirect to mobile dot website or whatever. That's that's adaptive in engineering land. And there's a lot of examples of that. An adapter in the gang of four patterns is the same kind of thing. You you have thing X and you make an adapter for it. And thing Y, you make an adapter for it. But there's no way to think about, okay, I don't know how what change is coming. How do I prepare myself for that? So I started to do research and I came across evolutionary biology, which I have no experience in, and found that in the last basically 20 years, there's a lot of uh, research going into this concept called degeneracy, which is a sibling of redundancy. So redundancy is using the exact same thing in multiple instances. So I have a a right arm and a left arm. They're fundamentally the same thing. They can both serve the same purpose. Degeneracy is an example of um, things that have different structures being able to produce the same outcome. So the example in the original paper was writing instruments. So you can write your name with a crayon, you can write it with a pen, you can write it with a pencil. 
they're different functions or different structures, but they have the same function. They produce the same outcome. And essentially what the research has shown is that this idea of degeneracy is how evolutionary biology adapts over time. Because it answers the problem of the most successful species genetically have to be robust, which means they have stable genetic makeup, like their their genes don't randomly vary with each generation. So they have stable traits, it's called. The problem is that random variation is how you evolve complexity in the first place. And they know that complexity is a prerequisite to being able to be robust. Like, you know, we have very complex immune systems as we're learning with the pandemic. Um, That's why developing a vaccine takes so long. Um, And to get that complexity, you have to have all this random variation. You have to have mess. Um, So the problem has always been, well, robustness and variation are at odds with one another. So in theory, this you have this evolutionary cycle that must stop at some point because you get robust enough or you get complex enough to be able to be robust, but then you're also not evolvable. And so what they're realizing is that part of the complexity is having all these inborn degenerate solutions. So basically you have your your immune system has functionality, it has ways to do things that are already ready for a future that doesn't exist yet. And they're just there in a wasteful way. It's it's definitely wasteful from an engineering perspective, but it's powerful. And so I think um, I started looking at that and trying to figure out, okay, what does that, uh, how does that apply to software? How does it apply to the world? And the more research I did, the more I realized, oh, wow, this is actually everywhere. Like the, um, you know, the, I, read a lot of books on business and management and this idea that's been very popular since the eighties, increasingly. So in the last 15 years with agile, this idea of pushing management decisions lower down in an organization, uh, basically making autonomous units lower in the company. If you do that, you create redundant decision-making like the traditional military model is the boss makes the decisions and everybody below implements it. Uh, if you've read David Marquette's book, turn the ship around about the, I think it's the USS Phoenix submarine. He used the exact opposite approach where he said, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to push decision-making down in, into lower levels of the submarine, which meant that it's possible for people to make different decisions at different times. It's possible to make conflicting decisions, but it's also it's it's an example of degeneracy because in an emergency, there's more than one way to solve a problem because different units are are enabled or empowered to solve that problem. Um, Amazon sort of pizza team model is the same kind of thing. Uh, I remember talking to I forget who it was, but different CTO, their company was organized uh, such that they were not allowed to have any dependencies on any other teams, even if that meant they would rebuild the other team's tools. So like you had the the microservices team that managed the user database and your team needed some way to track users. If, uh, if that service didn't provide what you would need, you would be allowed to build your own user service temporarily to do that. That's an ex- example of degeneracy because now you end up with two 
ways to solve user management in the company. And later on, one of them may be more prepped to solve some, like they're, they're not, they're not redundant. They're not functionally identical because they were made by different teams with different motivations. One of those may work better in some later version. They're more prepared for unexpected, unforeseen circumstances than they would be if they centralized all in one place. So back to what you're talking about, the, the uh, pandemic supply chain problems, like ending up with only one supplier in Lombardy, Italy for nasal swabs turns out to look really good in the short term, but terrible in the long term. Um, whereas other supply chains that are more degenerate ended up being much more robust. So I'm still trying to, in terms of writing the book, still trying to figure out how to structure this, to write it all into what um, what we all need to learn as software developers. <laughs> um, I, th- I think there's just, there's so many ways it started to influence my work that I'm you know, it's constant, it's a moving target, constantly changing how I think about how to approach different problems. Um, but it, yeah, I'm not sure where it's going to end up. And I think that's the problem. <laughs> the, the one thing that I do, I, somebody gave me advice once that like, cause I've been doing research for the book and somebody said, you know, you're ready to write when all of the books you're reading start to point at each other. Like we're like, oh, this book is saying I should read more about this idea. And it's like, well, I've already read that book and that book pointed this one. When it starts to go in a circle, you know you're ready. And that's that's basically happened. But now it's the hard part of actually putting text in an, in an editor. What is the one or two problems that a reader is going to have that your book is the answer to, or, you know, has someone say, oh, you you know, you should read Aaron's book. And I, and I, having been in your audience since watching you incubate this talk and nurture this talk, I think it's just supremely valuable for CTOs to know this stuff and then to be the educators in how this stuff works because it appeals the 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 scientific side of it appeals to us the philosophical direction appeals to us and then there's the stereotype out in the world which I think a lot of CTOs perpetuate which is a topic you and I have talked about as well, which is seeing software projects as construction projects versus the garden. And I always thought that that was such a profound distinction and a, a, a paradigm-shifting way to look at our projects and our products um, that to this day I, I, I use that. I, I, I help CEOs see it that way. I help my team see it that way. That part's not in the book yet. I should put that in the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think you're right, though. The, the I think the audience is me five, six years ago, thinking I knew, thinking I had sort of climbed to this level of, oh, I know, I know this stuff. Like, I have put all the things in my brain, and I have 
you know, reach the level of I've solved these problems. I know how to do this thing. I now know this many languages, programming languages, and I know, you know, the following chords in Vim that make me fast to type, right? Like thinking that that was an achievement at all is sort of like, I think the book should be a, just like a reality check to realize when you're thinking that you are shooting yourself in the foot in a whole bunch of different ways that are actually harming your experience with your team, your experience with your wife, your, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, all these things are, are just lessons I've learned, which is what, kind of why I mentioned, like, I'm just not the type of person to be like, to write a memoir. And it just doesn't feel like it should be a memoir. But so much of this, like, so much of the book is just the journey I have been on the last six years or so to figure some of this stuff out for myself. And it, it kind of, it's, you're right that the science is kind of this Trojan horse. Cause I, if you remember the way I described this at the beginning, like I was the engineer going, Oh, there's information that's not in my brain. How do, how do I make something adapt? How do I plug that adaptability skill into my brain and then come to learn, Oh, thinking that there's an adaptability skill that I plug into my brain is the problem. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I would say uh, this this question of you can't figure out who the book is for is probably it's probably going to be a mind blowing breakthrough when you when you when you have the aha moment like okay I I because it's almost like you 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 you're branching and piecing and uh, things together and you're, you're in this world and but you don't know you don't realize you're standing right in front of the person you're writing this for but you you can't see it but when you see it you'll be like of course i'm trying to think about um like daniel kahneman's book you know thinking fast and slow it's it's there's nothing there's nothing really in that title that makes me think, oh, this book is for me. And thinking fast and slow is a, okay, think fast, think slow. But then it's in that subtitle, right? And I think your talk, your talks and the way you've titled your talks have got some, I mean, very attractive, I forget what the subtitle was to the last talk, but but uh, it's all in that subtitle. The, hub the hubris of the engineer, something like that, yeah. I think that's a big, um, that's probably the, the big message is, is that hubris is kind of the problem that we, we all tend to have. Um, I worry, though, that people get defensive with that. When you, when you start with, oh, you have hubris as an engineer. Uh, you know, that's a, people get defensive, but it's, I mean, it's true. I, I, I see it in decisions I made over time. That's the, that's the other pro there's a whole, I mean, I don't know, scientific paper, scientific article or whatever. There's a whole article about that, that the fact that that term 
the term has always meant what I described it to mean in the in the biology sense. It has a different meaning in physics. I forget what it is, um, but the the colloquial meaning is you know evolutionarily backwards and stupid and dumb, and that like the the author of this article is basically saying we have missed this. Like even evolutionary biologists have missed this because nobody wants to research something called degeneracy. Like it just sounds wrong. So, well, and then also if you think about uh, your book title and the way you position it, I mean, you have a golden opportunity to use a word that no one is using. You will absolutely. What was that book on degeneracy? Uh, Aaron Longwall, the degenerate CTO. Yeah, the degenerate CTO. I thought about titling titling one of my talks in a trolling fashion as like, "Why you need to write more degenerate code" or something like that. Um, actually, I, I no, that's not true. I did. I gave a talk at a Go meetup called "Go is a degenerate language, and that's why you should like it." And that was pretty well received, but that's a small Go meetup. But Although that community is growing hard. Are you still doing Go? Yeah, the, our, this project in Afghanistan is in Go. Um, it's actually been a controversy a little bit. The The team that we work with is like, why aren't you writing it in Java? And I was like, oh, because it's not 10 years ago. <laughs> wonder if there is a uh, in that environment are you at liberty to say like how are they hosting this is it you know, the data center in, in so we are there that's a that's a controversy there um there are actually laws in afghanistan that say has to, it has to be hosted they imply it has to be hosted in the country um but in-country hosting is a major risk for a system like this. Like the, we were on a we were on a call recently, uh, hour and a half into this call. It's at ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night, my time. Hour and a half into the call, and some guy's talking and just disappears for a moment. Comes back and says, "Sorry, I disappeared. The power has been out here all day, and my phone battery just died, and I had to switch to." Uh, uh, like my plug-in battery or whatever, but I can't, it's too dark. So I couldn't see the, where it was. And <laughs> like the, I mean, this is in cobble. The power goes out for, you know, several hours fairly often. And so it's, it's tough to build a data center in that environment. So we we're pushing them to use some sort of cloud-based hosting um, and we're developing it to be cloud friendly. Uh, but that, the question of exactly where it's going to be hosted when we're done is not yet answered. And then also <clears throat> with languages like Go, is there suspicion that it's a Google incubated language or? Not really. The real opposition to it is the traditional one you would expect that, oh, there's not any developers who know that here. Um, you know, and my answer to that is, well, it's a two-year project. Ask me again in two years if anybody knows it. Um, but also the reason we chose it is for simplicity. Like we have, we've actually had a very junior heavy team 
partly with this in mind to make sure we're developing something that you can onboard new people really quickly on. And I think Go is great for that. Um, it's This is another example like the build your own custom components thing. Like a lot of developers will come in from a PHP background or for Ruby on Rails background and think, oh, this Go stuff is, you know, that's that's what the senior engineers use. You know, that's like compiled language. I, I don't know how to do that. But it's amazing how all those the tool all the tooling the compiler is your your friend ultimately like it, it stops you from writing things that don't actually work and and addresses that sooner you know it embarrasses you before you get embarrassed by a PR or a failing test and it's much so people have been very fast to to learn it like everybody has said I thought the go learning go was going to be a problem learning view we're using a lot of front end like that's a it's a huge app with a lot of screens so there's a lot of kind of complexity in the view system we've had several different developers say yeah learning the view stuff was harder than learning the go stuff some of them came from react so there's transition there but most of it is just the actual complexity of the app and are your junior devs all sourced in the states yeah well sort of so we have um we have two teams essentially. There's a so I mentioned this. This is version two. We're replacing an existing system. So there's a team that's in Kabul that is managed um, managed somewhat locally. It used to be locally, but he's since moved out to Dubai um, for there's some been some embassy restructuring. So how many staff are there has been shifting around. Um, so I have a guy who manages the the team in in uh, Kabul maintaining the old system but we will be very soon onboarding that team to work with us on the new system and that's sort of step one of the transition because then their team will then train the afghan government developers so uh, their team is a mix of senior and junior developers um but so we've kind of had this this gradual phase in so we started with senior engineers building a sort of foundational platform we ramped up the team, brought in actually some interns who we then graduated to full-time um, development, and then uh, you know we'll do the handoff to the Kabul team, and then the handoff to the Afghan government uh, operated and salaried people. So, so it's not in your interest, or it's not really in your longer-term interest to incubate and train developers in Kabul. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's the other company, right? Um, well, it it yeah, it's not. Um, there's no business reason for our team to do that. In fact, the the way contractually it's it's envisioned, um, they're being paid at Afghan government uh, pay scales. So the hope and this who knows how likely it actually is, was that is that they would actually then become employees of the other government entity. So when the Afghan government actually takes it over, it might not be them training their counterparts. It might be them going to work for the Afghan government. Um, I know historically in international development projects, that's not a you know sure thing like that. It's generally better to work for a government contractor that, than to work for the government in a country like Afghanistan because there's so much uncertainty and who's going to be in charge and politics. And, um, but, you know, they will have, 
you know, a job ready to go, basically, if they if they jump ship. Alrighty, folks. Well, thanks again for joining us here in the CTO studio. We will see you again next time with more interviews. Uh, as you have probably noticed, they're getting a little bit longer because they're getting a little bit more in depth. And uh, I, for one, am enjoying every single moment of that. Now, if you would please go check out Aaron Longwell's LinkedIn page. If you would please go check out 7CTOs.com. And if you would not mind, please go subscribe to the podcast here available in iTunes. We will see you next time.